0: If you're an employee or a volunteer at a Catholic nonprofit, how can you serve the public without compromising your beliefs? How can your group go about its activities while avoiding problems with civil authority? With the cultural and legal landscape of the United States shifting so rapidly, Catholics need a practical guide to navigate the public square while remaining true to their faith and protecting themselves from unnecessary battles with the law and the media. Welcome to Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati-Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. We've teamed up with the National Catholic Register to bring you a podcast series with an A-list group of scholars and advocates to discuss why religious freedom matters. On this episode, Joan Desmond, senior editor at the National Catholic Register, is joining me by phone. And our guest is Josh Reed. Vice President and Executive Director of the Napa Legal Institute, here with us in person at the Guadalupe Radio Network's D.C. studio. This is an exciting time for all of us, and I can think of no better group of experts to turn to on the topic of Catholic nonprofits and other faith-based groups in order to avoid any kind of legal problems than the brilliant staff at the Napa Legal Institute and Josh, their fearless Executive Director. Now, Josh, the mission of Napa Legal is to keep faith-based organizations out of court by empowering them with best practices on a range of matters affecting their groups. Can you share a little bit about the Institute's creation and what you've been able to set up in such a short period of time?
1: Andrea, thanks for having me on today. The reason why Napa Legal Institute was founded was because there was a gap in the religious liberty space that was identified by our founders. There are great organizations out there like Alliance Defending Freedom, Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty that are doing the important work of litigating cases in the courtroom, but there's no organization in existence that was focused on protecting religious liberty outside of the courtroom. And so what I mean by that is oftentimes religious nonprofits have already won or lost many of their battles before they go into court on the strength of their corporate documents, their governing practices, things that should keep them up at night in terms of are they securing their religious liberty so that they can protect their organizations and achieve their missions.
0: Now, Joan and I were talking a little bit about NAPA's founding principles, and I know Joan has some questions about, I think, your flagship document, which is called Empowering Evangelization. Joan, why don't you take off from here?
2: I just thought it was really interesting that you had this kind of military mission. My husband would have liked it even more. I've been at so many Catholic schools that didn't have a definable mission. It had gotten murkier and influenced by shifting board leaders and just changes in society. And so they never even ended up in court. They were just whipsawed by everything. And then I thought, having covered these events that do end up in court, I thought, they wouldn't be prepared at all. And I think what's really interesting is that you've taken this kind of military approach, and your fundamental mission is empowering evangelization. Right there is kind of radical. It's a lot more than some institutions have really even grappled with. But tell me more about how you kind of nailed that down.
1: Of course, so yes, to to that military analogy, empowering evangelization is our commander's intent. And what I mean by that is, when I was hired on to Napa Legal Institute, I obviously prodigiously memorized what our mission set was, what we were doing, what the types of issues were we were dealing with, whether there's corporate governance, tax compliance, some of these really intricate and complex issues. But then one of our board members, who himself is actually a bit of a military historian, uh, asked me, okay, that's all fine, but do you know what your commander's intent is? And I kind of looked at him with a blank stare and then sort of rattled off the mission statement again. He said, no, no, no. What is your intent? What do we as the board expect you to accomplish? So the analogy here again is like, for example, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. His commander's intent in Europe was to liberate it, liberate Europe. So whether you were a sailor, an airman, an infantryman, you might have had very specific missions You know, when you landed on the beaches or parachuted into the cities of Europe. But you knew no matter what, because oftentimes when a mission encounters resistance or force, it gets thrown out the window. But what never gets thrown out the window is your commander's intent. So they knew that no matter what, they needed to liberate Europe. So we kind of took that analogy and applied it to Napa Legal Institute. Again, our commander's intent is empowering evangelization. Obviously, there are plenty of people on the front lines, lay apostolate leaders, who are evangelizing. That's ultimately the work of Catholic lay apostolates and other faith-based nonprofits. That's the reason why they exist. We're not evangelizing ourselves, what we're doing is empowering evangelization by giving those organizations and faith-based leaders the tools, education, and resources they need in order to accomplish their missions. We're in the, in the background supplying the equipment, supplying you know, the arms and the things necessary for them to fight those battles in the public square to evangelize for the church.
0: Now, Josh, when we look at the Second Vatican Council's documents, especially the decree on the apostolate of the laity, it seems like you're giving people the tools in the toolbox in order to build that project and to take that declaration and put it into practice. How consistent do you feel you've been able to achieve that?
1: Very consistently. So, going back to this idea of, you know, the Second Vatican Council, we have responsibility to build up institutions and participate in the great call of evangelization. So in order to do that, these organizations that are doing the evangelization needs particular corporate documents, knowledge of local and state ordinances and laws so they don't run afoul of those laws. For example, one of the the products we've produced, which has been widely used and distributed, is a Catholic employment handbook for Catholic schools. So I think, Joan, you were speaking earlier about this, how you've encountered a lot of faith-based organizations, Catholic schools who didn't really secure their religious identity or their mission in their corporate documents or employment practices. So that's an easy gap that we filled by creating a boilerplate document that Catholic schools could use, incorporate into their own practice employment practices so that they would be protected.
0: I'm immediately thinking, I'm forwarding that handbook to my children's parochial (laughs) school as soon as we're done here. And I would encourage everyone that's listening to look at Napa Legal's documents. You can access that again at NapaLegalInstitute.org. Now, because this is a focus specifically on religious freedom matters, I'd like to do a bit of a round robin with Joan, where we're going to pepper you, Josh, with a lot of questions on the things that your organization has developed or is developing to answer some of these tough questions that these nonprofit, whether they be Catholic or other faith based groups, are doing to guard against infringements on their organization's religious freedom. And the first is kind of a, a definitional issue. You mentioned early on, how do you make sure that your organization is treated as a religious organization for purposes of religious liberty protections?
1: One of the first things I always ask faith-based nonprofit leaders is, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, uh, are you a rhino? And of course, I get a look like, what are you talking about? And I say, rhino in terms of do not be a rhino, religious in name only. There's a lot of organizations that claim that they're religious but then when you look at their employment practices you look at their corporate documents you look at their marketing materials you suddenly realize that they're religious in name only this of course means that religious organizations many do naturally practice their faith through their organization but the idea is are you religious from a legal perspective as an organization because if you're not then you cannot avail yourself of existing religious liberty protections. So a way to do that, for example, is in your bylaws to have a statement of faith. What does it mean to be a practicing Catholic? So, for example, at Napa Legal Institute, we are a religious corporation ourselves, and we have a definition of what a practicing Catholic is, and it's in our corporate documents. So that if, say, someone were to sue us for some some other reason, we could avail ourselves of existing religious liberty protections because we are religious in name. And so... One of the documents, one of the creations that we have at Napa Legal is uh, religious liberty bylaws. So every organization needs bylaws. Bylaws help them govern the organization, help them in terms of what they need to do with board members and things like that. But you need to have religious liberty language explicitly inserted into your bylaws so that you can protect yourself and avail yourself of those existing protections.
0: You know, I'm wondering, a lot of organizations that I'm familiar with and have collaborated with just personally are reaching out to people beyond the Catholic faith tradition, and that's the charism of the organization. They're really trying to show that living our faith isn't exclusive to helping our people and our church, but is really there to help our communities. Is there a flip side where groups aren't religious even in name, and they need to make sure that their religious identity is in those bylaws, even if their service is in a non-religious identity.
1: Absolutely. So again, this gets to the question of whether faith-based nonprofits should have a role in providing social services in the public square, even if those social services are generally applicable to people who might not share their faith tradition. So an interesting fact about this, according to a study in 2016 by Georgetown University, it was found that the, the socioeconomic value of religion is over $1.2 trillion. That's more than the annual revenue of big tech giants like Apple, Amazon, Google, et cetera. So again, a lot of people don't realize the public benefit, not just private benefit of religion, but the public benefit that religion provides in the public square in the form of those social services. Another example I would offer was during COVID. Obviously, we saw a lot of instances where churches were being shut down, penalized, unfairly so, a double standard started to emerge. So what's interesting about that is, for example, there's a lot of criticism towards religious organizations taking Paycheck Protection Program loans. So one of those organizations was Catholic Charities. But of course what we found out later is that Catholic Charities, the impact of their value was double the mm-hmm. amount of loans that they were taking from the federal government, which again just proves that earlier fact that I shared, that the socioeconomic value, again the public value of religion is so tremendous.
0: I wrote a little bit about a, a recent study by the BridgeSpan Group, which talked about the significant contributions of faith-inspired—they call them groups—especially in minority and low-income communities. Right. So when we're we're looking at post-pandemic, hopefully, recovery, some of these neighborhoods are the ones that have been hit hardest economically and socially, and because of health problems, and churches are going to be important parts of the solution for their recovery. So it's it's wonderful that you're able to link that social good. It's not just uh, evangelization, but it's also social service that's being done by a lot of these groups.
1: Right, and what's important too is an important part of the evangelization are those social services that are provided by the church or those organizations aligned with the church. Because again, the reason why people are involved in lay apostolates and providing those social services is because they're inspired by their faith to do so. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why those two things are intricately intertwined and shouldn't be separated out.
0: Now I'm going to pass the next question off to Joan because it's a perfect segue to a beautiful group of people called the Little Sisters of the Poor and groups like them who have pushed back against some of the federal government's mandates that interfere with their ability to serve consistent with belief. So Joan, take it away.
2: Well, I've actually been covering the Little Sisters fight for justice since 2011, and that's how long the US bishops have been engaged in this as well. And basically the problem was the Obama administration, through the Affordable Care Act, provided for changes to the law that required additional services, so-called preventative services, to be offered, including pregnancy-related services, contraception in particular, And that would be surgical abortion uh, as well as IUDs and other kinds of uh, contraceptives, oral contraceptives that are believed to be abortifacients. So a variety of different groups, including the Little Sisters of the Poor, said that they could not participate in this and wanted to opt out of this mandate. They went to court, actually, overall, there were more than 60 cases involving religious freedom claims dealing with the Affordable Care Act mandate. And it's fascinating, it was, it was a big debate, as you may remember, within the Catholic Church, which was some saying the bishops were coming down too hard. But the Little Sisters were a particularly appealing plaintiff in all of this. and. I think it was really important because it was an opportunity in a very concrete way for people to say well gee these are women who are just giving their lives over to the service of the elderly poor this is how they spend their time i've been to their homes they're just amazing places and just comfortable clean happy places in which you know the mass is offered but also just one-on-one care it's and the nuns are there with the people it's wonderful so the nuns were a really appealing voice for this religious freedom claim, but it didn't really get resolved for quite a long time. We had the Hobby Lobby case, which was resolved at the courts first, and that allowed for protections for family-owned businesses. The Little Sisters case has dragged on, and honestly, you think it's going to be over And, you know, California then took it up after the court had asked the Little Sisters and the government to resolve the issues. So under Trump, it seemed like there was a reprieve. And now I don't even know exactly what the latest development is, but it's an example of the kinds of problems and challenges that faith-based organizations are dealing with right now. And often it's framed in a way of they're being allowed, you know, a license to discriminate or preventing women hurting women who are poor from access to contraception. And very little attention is given in media accounts to the reality that we have this history of protection for religious freedom and that these sisters and others deserve that protection.
0: Now, one of the great things that you mentioned, Joan, was the response of of the prior administration, the Trump administration, and the Department of Health and Human Services in particular responded to the objections by groups like the Little Sisters to carve out some religious and moral objecting rules that would allow groups like the Little Sisters, other nonprofits, to take advantage of an exemption to the contraceptive mandate Those rules are still in force despite President Biden's comments during the campaign trail that he wants to get rid of them. Josh, how have nonprofits in your orbit that have been in touch with Napa Legal taken advantage? Have they reached out? What's the chatter out there about the importance of these rules in securing their confidence that they won't be subjected to crazy fines?
1: A lot of this comes down to understanding what your state and local ordinances require of you in terms of compliance. So again, there's different states and different cities that had different laws that have certain carve-outs for exemptions, others that don't. So actually, one of the tools that we created in response to this confusion, because I would get different phone calls or emails kind of asking about very narrow questions from state to state in terms of, do I have an exemption from this particular burden on my religious liberty because I'm trying to run a faith-based nonprofit in accordance with my faith? So we created this interactive tool. We've been building it for two years, and we recently launched it called the Multi-State Compliance Matrix. So what the Napa Legal... That sounds really cool. Yes. So what the <laughs> Napa Legal Institute team has done has analyzed and created state profiles for every state in the union that tracks and analyzes every law and state ordinance that would impact materially impact faith-based activity in that state. So the reason why we did this is because state and local laws and local ordinances are just as important as federal laws. And understanding and tracking those laws and understanding if certain laws are burdensome to your religious practice it's extremely important. So we created this tool that's unique to us that helps faith-based nonprofits that uh, have a national scope or even just a state scope. They know all the different things that they must do in order to comply with the law, but also fulfill their religious mission.
0: And I'm assuming that this got coverage, especially on the issue of what's being called in general like a transgender mandate. Do you have to provide coverage for gender reassignment surgeries in your insurance? If you're a hospital or any kind of group that's providing medical care, is there an exemption in state, local, and even at the national level? How is that coming? Because we know that the Catholic Benefits Association and Beckett have had some great successes and victories in the courts right now to preserve the right to object to performing or paying for or including these procedures in an employer insurance program. But what for people who aren't currently covered by those protections?
1: I would defer to Beckett and ADF and others um, because they've been kind of tracking this a little bit more closely. From our perspective, from sort of a faith-based operations and being able to exempt yourself from, you know, again, laws and ordinances that are burdensome to your conscience, your religious practices, these are things that, again, we're building into our matrix. Uh, We're, again, doing analysis and writing in terms of what does it mean to petition for an exemption or to identify an exemption in existing law this also gets to like uh, sexual orientation and gender identity ordinances and laws our big thing is to educate faith-based nonprofits so they understand what's in these SOGI laws. And because again, I think Joan was alluding to this a little bit, the mainstream media, unfortunately, is less sympathetic sometimes to people of faith than they are to whatever the particular orthodoxy is of uh, you know, a particular set of beliefs. In this case, you know, trying to push people of faith outside of the public square because they're not conforming to sort of new beliefs that are deemed to be the ones that are appropriate.
0: That turns to another perfect segue, thank you, Josh, to the issue of the protection for religious organizations' autonomy. You mentioned before some legal decisions that happened last year involving Title VII, that's the employment anti-discrimination law at the federal level, and expanding the definition of sex discrimination to include sexual orientation, gender identity, But Joan knows a lot about what's called the ministerial exception and how that's a protection for especially these nonprofit or religious organizations. Joan, where do you see the protection and the understanding of the ministerial exception on kind of a global scale? Do people get that this is a way to preserve a religious group's identity and autonomy?
2: I think they do. And then they've got additional help. I and mean, there were some questions after Hosanna Tabor for people to better understand you know, where this was going. And it's kind of interesting because more recently, the 2020 Supreme Court case, Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beru, they returned to the ministerial exception. And it's interesting because these two cases came out of California. And the Ninth Circuit, I believe it was suggested that, well, this Hosanna-Tabor case was sort of a Lutheran case, and it had specific language related to this Lutheran school, so since that was not the language at the Catholic school, then everything else was in doubt as well. Again, going back to Josh's point about the handbooks and what's in the handbooks and the language used to define teachers' roles and responsibilities. So in this case, they said that with these two Catholic schools out of California, where two separate lawsuits arose, one dealing with discrimination based on age and another based on disability, they both were told that no, these schools have the right to decide to hire and fire as part of their overall mission, which of course, if you take Josh's mantra seriously, that's the best way to actually really focus on evangelization is every single day you do that. and every. Every teacher knows it. Every parent knows it. Every administrator knows it. So that was a big win, and I think really has made a difference. But there's going to be more cases. I mean, this isn't over yet by a long shot. Do you think, Josh?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this gets back to this sort of concept of fair practices ordinances. That's what was interesting in the Fulton case was that the court decided that the Catholic organization didn't really apply, or it didn't conform with, again, this idea, oh, it wasn't a fair practices ordinance case, so they kind of punted on this issue, which, because again, a lot of people were holding their breath wondering, say, if a SOGI law gets passed um, and it doesn't contain a religious exemption is that a burden or a violation of the First Amendment? I would, of course, argue yes, but we didn't get any clarifying principle in Fulton to kind of come to that conclusion. So that's gonna be something that will tease itself out Mm -hmm. down the road, but like you're saying, whether it was Guadalupe, Fulton, the momentum is on our side for basically Mm -hmm. returning to a proper understanding of the free exercise of religion, which isn't just contained to the four walls of a church.
2: Josh, don't you think a really key point, too, in Fulton is that it's not just religious freedom for the general public, but somehow faith-based agencies are second-class citizens? They said, no, it also applies to a particular case, a particular agency, a particular situation, and they absolutely upheld uh, their free exercise rights in that context, noting, for example, that while, yes, the agency did not place children with same-sex couples, they did refer them to those who would, and that there were more than 20 agencies available that would play children with same-sex couples. So it was really important to underscore religious freedom of those agencies, didn't you think? You know,
0: I would agree with you, Joan, as well. And I think that these complications and especially the work that Napa is doing right now aren't just to avoid a legal problem. It's also to be able to continue a mission and to share and educate the role of religious organizations in the fabric, you know, the social safety fabric of America. What was really great about this Fulton case that we're we're mentioning, the case involving the Archdiocese of Philadelphia's Foster Care Placement Agency, is that they almost used the opportunity, this terrible fight, to share how long they've been in the business of serving needy children and finding stable homes. So it's kind of one of those, you're faced with a contradiction and you can share more about the wonderful contributions that your group is doing in fighting for your right to continue doing so. And I wanted to ask Josh real quick, we like to try to end every episode with a call to action. Your group has been great with boots on the ground. What advice can you pass on to listeners, either that are involved in nonprofits, either running them or volunteering, or have benefited from these Catholic or other faith-inspired nonprofits? to help encourage that this isn't about a right to discriminate, but instead a right to continue to serve.
1: Secure your religious identity. If you are involved with a faith-based organization, a faith-based nonprofit, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, whatever it might be, the first thing you must absolutely do is secure your religious identity. Uh, Don't be religious in name only, because if you are a sincere religious organization, you need to incorporate those religious protections into your governing documents, into your practices, so that you can avail yourself of those existing religious liberty protections.
0: I would also encourage everyone to get involved, look at some of the documents, especially that NAPA has. You can subscribe to the NAPA Legal Newsletter and just get a better sense of you're not alone and there are a lot of legal protections out there to be able to continue to serve in the public square without getting into problems legally and being able to respond to the needs of our neighbor. So this was a fantastic overview of what faith-based entities can do to guarantee that they can serve consistent with religious beliefs and the increasing challenges of civil society. I'm so grateful to Josh Holden-Reed, Vice President and Executive Director at the Napa Legal Institute. Learn more about Napa Legal by visiting their website, napalegalinstitute.org. Thanks to National Catholic Register's Joan Desmond for her sharp insight and contributions, for joining us at the Guadalupe Radio Network, and for making their studio available here in Washington for us to gather. And of course, thank you for listening to another episode of Religious Freedom Matters. I'm Andrea Pachati Bayer, Director of the Conscience Project. Follow me on Twitter at Bayer Pachati, and you can read more from the Conscience Project at conscience-project. Org. Make sure to listen to all of our episodes of Religious Freedom Matters. You can find the episodes at the Conscience Project site as well as the National Catholic Register website.